Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is where we'll be this morning. The kind of preaching that we do here at Windsor Christian Fellowship is called expository preaching, which is really a, a fancy way of saying that we walk through a book of the Bible, passage by passage, to see God's intended meaning in that passage, in order to see the God's intended meaning in the book that we're looking at as a whole. So last year when we came on as interim pastor, we began preaching through uh, the book of Galatians. So we pieced it out and we broke it up and went right through it from beginning to the end. And then in December, we began a much bigger book of the Bible in Matthew. And so we've been walking through that since around Christmas time. And there are many benefits both for the preacher and for the congregation in doing this kind of preaching. And one of those benefits, although it can be difficult, is that you can't skip over the hard subjects. It would be obvious to you if we were plodding away for the last couple of months in the book of Matthew, and then we skipped a few verses here, and then we skipped a few verses there, you would begin to notice that I was avoiding that passage, that I didn't quite want to deal with it. Whether what it says is hard for us to handle or whether what it says is just difficult to understand, it would become obvious to you quite quickly that I was skipping around and dodging certain parts of the Bible. And in some ways, if I'm truthful, I wouldn't mind skipping over today's passage. I wouldn't mind skipping over next week's passage either. Because they are both very difficult subjects. They're not generally something that we like to talk about, nor are they easy to talk about. But to simply skip over God's word is to take away from what he has said to us, which is something that I'm very unwilling to do. So we will tackle this morning's passage, and we will tackle next week's passage Lord willing. But I'm hoping that you're beginning to see that walking through a book like this is very good and very necessary. That when we're slowly and methodically working our way through a book of the Bible, chewing on each piece of it that the Lord has placed there, so that although sometimes what isn't easy to swallow, we can always know that it's for our spiritual nourishment. That's my hope. So that whether it's difficult, whether it's not so difficult, whether we don't really want to hear it, or whether we do want to hear it, that we're willing to slowly chew on it and swallow it for our spiritual nourishment. But by way of review, we've been looking through Matthew. In particular, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And we started out where Jesus uh, mentions that we are blessed. We are blessed as his disciples. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the pure in heart. And so on. And then he moved on to tell these blessed disciples that they were to be salt and light into the world. That we're to go out into the fallen world and we're supposed to seek out the rot and act as a preservative, as salt, and and get in contact with that rot and see the the preservation of our society, the preservation of our communities in order so that they do not crumble. And we're also to be light. We're to be gospel light. We're to see the gospel go forward and preach it and and seek to bring the light of the gospel wherever there is darkness, which is certainly all around us. And from there, we we began to see Jesus get into the portion kind of that we're in right now, where he begins by saying that he didn't come to abolish the law, he didn't come to abolish the prophets, but that he came in order to fill it. So he didn't come in order to get rid of the Old Testament. It's not like Jesus came on the scene and all of a sudden he said, 
we're going we're gonna to do away with all that old-fashioned stuff that you guys are used to, and we're going to bring in a whole new thing. We're going to start all over with whatever, I, whatever comes out of my mouth. No, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's really going to do as we saw last week. He's going to show them the proper interpretation of the laws that they had misinterpreted for so long. So last week, we looked at murder. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But then he goes on to tell them that if they've been angry in their heart, if they've been angry in their heart toward somebody, that they've actually murdered that person in their heart. And then today, in verses 27 to 30, he says that to look upon a woman with lust is to break the seventh commandment that says, do not commit adultery. Look at the text with me in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'll use your word to confront, to expose, and to fix the errors that are in our heart by your spirit. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for your son boldly and willingly declaring your word while he was here on earth. We thank you that he is the word. I pray that we'll learn much of him this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You shall not commit adultery. So these words would have been quite familiar to the listeners that Jesus was speaking to on that day. Don't commit adultery is the seventh out of the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses when he was on that mountain. And he was to deliver those Ten Commandments to the people. But physical adultery itself is not necessarily what we're going to be addressing this morning. Is physical adultery wrong? Absolutely. Jesus isn't negating that. He's not taking away, remember, from these commandments. The people that were listening to him would have believed that it was wrong, that it would have been wrong to cheat on your spouse, much like even in our society. There are many marriages and many divorces, of course, but if you ask the average person if adultery is wrong, if cheating on your spouse is wrong, they would say yes. But Jesus begins his second out of six contrast here by saying, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. So I want to kind of sit on this for a minute and make sure that we're all good with it. Jesus, again, isn't negating the fact that adultery is sinful. It absolutely is. And the reason it's sinful is because it's a sexual relationship outside of the marriage relationship. God's intention was that sex would be maintained within the covenant relationship of a man and a woman. So he began with Adam and Eve, one man and one woman. They entered into a covenant relationship with one another, and they consummated that relationship sexually. So as the book of Genesis says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and he's going to be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. So it's important that we're all on the same page with this. Physical adultery, cheating on your spouse, is completely wrong. It's completely against 
God's will. Amen? Amen. Amen. But as I was researching the statistics on adultery, one of the staggering notions that is in the world today is that actual adultery can be genetically predetermined. In other words, you may have a genetic variation that basically won't allow you to remain faithful to your spouse. And in most ways, that's wrong. But in some ways, there's a piece of truth to that, that that we all have a predisposition to sin, that we're not born basically good, that we're born completely sinful, that we have no spiritual ability in and of ourselves to make choices to follow after God. So any kind of leaning toward or desire to be unfaithful to your spouse isn't necessarily born out of a genetic problem with the wires in your brain being a certain way, but it's born out of a heart of sin. And that's exactly where Jesus is diving into this morning. He wants to dive right into your heart. He's plumbing the depths of your heart. Jesus desires and expects that the men and women that make up his kingdom, that they're pure in heart, as he began the sermon with in verse 8. So when Jesus thinks about adultery, he's not simply thinking of the physical act, but adultery of the heart. Remember, Jesus is out to correct the faulty view that his listeners had. The people listening to him would have certainly, again, thought that physical adultery would have been wrong, but they wouldn't have seen the problem with committing adultery in their heart. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to get. He wants their heart. Look again at verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here Jesus is. He's pretty new on the scene. The crowds were beginning to swell around him when he's preaching this sermon on the mount. And as a man, he stands before them and says, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. And if I'm standing there as a man, I'm thinking, (laughs) right? Yeah, right, dude. There is no way you have not looked at a woman with lust. There is no way that you have not broken this commandment that's coming out of your own mouth. But friends, he never did. He never committed adultery in his heart. We know Jesus was a man. We know he was flesh and blood. We know he was tempted in all like manner as we are. So he would have had this temptation to look at a woman with lust, but he never did. The writer of Hebrews says that he was without sin. So not only did he come and never once think a dirty thought toward a woman, but the law he brings up here to not commit adultery is something that he is fulfilling in his active obedience to God. He is actively obeying the commands that are coming out of his mouth. So he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. So let's, let's stop there. Don't. Don't limit Jesus' statement. Don't make Jesus have to give every possible angle in order for you to be satisfied. And this is what I mean. You can easily flip it around and say, anyone who looks at a man to lust after him has committed adultery in her heart. So this is all inclusive. Anyone who looks at anyone lustfully has committed heart adultery. If you're a man looking at a man, if you're a woman looking at a woman, if you're a woman looking at a man, if you're a man looking at a woman, whatever it is, anyone who looks at anyone lustfully has committed heart adultery. 
The word here for look indicates a a stare or, or a long look. It can also mean looking at someone with the intent to get them to come after you. Leading somebody along in a lustful way. Indicating with your eyes that you want that certain person to to come after you. To look at a woman or a man with lust is not only to give your heart what it wants. But to fuel it and to stoke it and to feed it with the very thing that God tells us not to put into it. Lust is a matter of the heart. It's essentially impossible to have this discussion nowadays about this passage without addressing what is an incredibly besetting sin, not just within the country, but within the church itself, and that's pornography, both literary and video. When I was in college, we would all often drive from northeast Wisconsin, where my school was, down to the south-central region where Bethany and her family lived. And during that drive, which was about three and a half hours, we would go by building after building after building of what almost seemed like they were from a bygone era. There was store after store after store selling pornographic material. All these billboards, you'd go by them every few minutes, billboard after billboard on an otherwise vacant highway trying desperately to pull you into their stores. But by this point, the need for such stores was increasingly diminished. With the internet growing like crazy, there was no need to stop at a store like this. With the ability to click on anything you want for free, it would be silly to go into a store like that and risk the shame of being seen or um, having to pay for something. The internet has made a way to escape any kind of shame or courage it would take to go into these kinds of stores. These buildings that were once storehouses of whatever you craved or whatever you wanted to see have been replaced by personal computers. They've been replaced by laptops. They've been replaced by tablets and phones. And whatever you choose to look at now, nobody even has to know that you're looking. The statistics say that it is no longer if you will be exposed to pornography, but it is when you will be exposed to pornography. I can remember the first time when I was seven or eight years old, a friend of mine showed me a stack of his dad's material. I can remember the first time my family got a computer when I was around 13 years old, and I can remember the first pop-up that came up. It is no longer if you are exposed to pornography, it is when. A non-Christian movement has begun called Fight the New Drug, where they lay out the many bad side effects of watching pornography. The information on their website, fightthenewdrug.org, lays out how pornography changes the wiring of your brain. It actually changes how you think. It lays out how it's addictive. It lays out how it hurts your spouse, how it affects your behavior, how it ruins your sex life with your spouse, and so on. Pornography has quite literally become the new drug, and it's completely free. People are always looking for something to excite them, for some kind of new thrill. But they are looking and searching in a bottomless pit of sewage for something that will never satisfy, satisfy their cravings. And they will not find what they are craving in the sewage of pornography. It's typically noted that men are more visual and so men are more susceptible to pornography. And it's more of a besetting sin for men. But that's not always the case. 
The pornographers have pursued women as well, particularly in the sales of romance novels, where the sex isn't limited to a video, but has a whole lot of tension and a story, a plot wrapped around it to make the woman want to read it and to be able to read something that they will never personally experience with their partnership. Most notably, the sales of the books and the subsequent movies, Fifty Shades of Grey, have been incredible, combining both the power of the book for women and the power of the video, the visual, for men. The movie sales alone to this point have been over half a billion dollars worldwide. The president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Albert Moeller, said this about the power behind Fifty Shades of Grey. The next step in the evolution of pornography combines in an unprecedented way male-oriented visual pornography with female-oriented narrative pornography. The movie is being marketed on Valentine's Day, which of course was last month, as an adventure for couples, something offered to both men and women. So what used to seem like an isolated male problem in watching this stuff, and what seemed to be an isolated female problem in reading this stuff, they have been married together in both book and film to provide something that the hearts of both men and women crave. And this is all indicative of the fact that we have a heart problem. Men and women, black and white, Child, adult, whatever it is, we all have incredibly wicked hearts. And where do these wicked hearts come from? Where does your desire to lust after another person come from? Jesus says in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. For out of the heart come murder. For out of the heart comes adultery. For out of the heart comes sexual immorality. And so on. This is where lust begins. It begins right in here. One of the lies of lust is that it has no consequence to anybody else but me. That it affects nobody else but me. And even if that were the case, the consequence is incredible. Paul says in Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So if you don't think there's much of a consequence, if you're just thinking, oh, well, it's only a consequence to me. If I want to rewire my brain and think about these things, or if I want to look at this certain woman at the office all the time, or whatever the case is, the consequence is huge. Because because of these, because of lust, because of impure thoughts, because of immorality, because of evil thoughts, the wrath of God is coming. The problem is with the heart. We fuel the heart with our lustful eyes and we will receive the consequence for it. Receive the wrath of God. So if we can identify the problem of lust and we can identify where the lust begins in our hearts and we know that the consequence is going to be the wrath of God, then how do we deal with it? If we're sitting here and we're struggling with this and we're thinking, I do struggle with looking at women. I do struggle with thinking about the certain man. I do struggle with watching pornography. How, how do we deal with it? Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So verses 29 through 30, after reading it a couple times so far, you can probably tell that they're parallel to each other. If your eye causes you to sin, 
rip it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's far better to lose an eye, it's far better to lose your hand than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, to be clear, I, I hope you all don't come back next week with your right eye and your right hand gone. The whole point of these two verses is this. How serious are you going to take your sin? He's purposely overstating what you need to know to show you how serious he considers this problem of heart adultery to be. Remember, the people of Jesus that that he's preaching to, they were taught to have an external view of this law. And they didn't see the weight and the seriousness of the heart, which is what God was always after in the Old Testament. He didn't want simple outward conformity to laws. He wanted inward transformation. He wanted the circumcision of the heart. He wanted the filth of the heart cut away. He wanted that inward transformation. And the same is with us. The world often views the church as a bunch of decently moral people, maybe, yet little do they know that the general disposition that we often have toward immorality and adultery and pornography is very light, and we prove that by what we talk about, what we read about, and what we watch. Far too many pastors are afraid to say anything on these subjects in fear that they may lose their congregation. But Jesus is teaching his disciples that they need to have a heart that's been transformed, not simply a body that's externally conformed to a list of do's and don'ts, not simply by never physically cheating on their spouse, but to have a heart pure of adultery as well. So we identify the sin. We see it as a sin of the heart, and we must purge that sin from us. As John Owen has famously said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So if our eyes and our hands are causing us to stumble, we need to get rid of them in real life practical ways. Do we purposefully walk by an attractive person at the office in hopes to get them to look at us or that we'll get a glance at them? Do we position our laptop at home in a way that nobody else will see? Do we go on when no one else is around in hopes that you can have your own freedom where it's just you and you can deal with the consequences again on your own? Are we putting ourselves in the position to be tempted or are we running away from these kinds of temptations? There are several good and bad examples in the Bible. You can probably think of those who fell prey to their own sexual urges. You can think of Samson who had an incredible strength, didn't he? Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he was incredibly strong, but he was incredibly weak at the knees, wasn't he, when it came to women? The irony of Samson is that what Jesus presents as an overstatement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, became a reality for him when they gouged out his eyeballs. Think of the man of God's own heart, David, who stayed home from battle. He goes out onto his roof and he sees a woman bathing. He, he lusts after her. He commits adultery with her in his heart. And then he commits adultery with her with his body. And then what you, you remember the whole big mess that ensues after that. And then he has to go and kill her husband in order to cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. The lives of these men were literally ruined because of their lust. But think of good examples. Like Joseph. Remember Joseph in, in, in Genesis when Potiphar's wife, beautiful Potiphar's wife, would constantly come after him. Lie with me. Lie with me. Lie with me. And he consistently said no. 
Think of Job who underwent extreme trial and extreme situations and temptations from the devil. Yet he said that he, would, he made a covenant with his eyes that he would not look lustfully after a young woman. What is in your life that is helping you to give your heart what it wants in this area? Get rid of it. Don't let anything sound too extreme. If you struggle with pornography, confess it to God, confess it to your spouse, get accountability, don't be alone with a computer or a TV, get filters on your internet that send a report to somebody else if you've been on a wrong site. Nothing is too extreme to cut out of your life to keep your heart pure. Nothing is too extreme to push out of your life to keep your heart pure. I heard of a teacher one time who quit his job in the public school because of certain girls within the school who were constantly pushing the boundaries of the dress code, and he quit his job because of it. Let nothing sound too extreme to cut off of your life to keep this pure. One commentator said this, When it comes to sights that cause us to sin... We must behave as though we have no eyes. When it comes to sinning with our hands, we must live as an amputee. When you come across someone that you desire to lust after, behave as though you don't even have the eyes to lust after that person. If you desire to sin with your hands to help fuel your heart with lustful thoughts, think of yourself as one without even the hands to do so. But if you notice, in verse 29 and 30, they both end with the same word. Look at the ends of verse 29 and 30. They both end with the same word, hell. My friends, it is far more convenient for you to lose your hand or your eye than to spend eternity in hell. It's far more convenient for you to get off the laptop. It's far more convenient to quit your job It's far more convenient to make a radical shift in your life than for you to enter into your hell. Getting rid of your computer or not walking where you usually do at work, where you usually would, is far more convenient than losing an eye or losing a hand. But we all struggle with this in one way or another. No other sin is warned against more in the New Testament than sexual sin. We all have the struggle. We've all looked and wanted and done what God commands us not to do. And it may sound like a good idea. Okay, you might leave and say, okay, a couple practical things that I can do. I can, I can get a, a filter on my laptop now. I, I can get an accountability partner with somebody. I can have more interaction and conversations about this instead of say, staying away from them. I, maybe I'll, I'll go and burn my not romance novels. or Whatever practical thing that you might be thinking to help you And those are all good. But those are external helps. Those are things that won't necessarily change your heart. You can push all of that out, but you can still sit in a room alone and you can can commit heart adultery, can't you? So how do we get lasting change? There are some who preach and write books that say, all you have to do is believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself and, and you'll overcome this. You'll, you'll be able to do it. You can just keep pressing and you will change. But I think we all know that that doesn't work. So how can we change? Turn over to Romans chapter 8.
Romans 8. Paul pits two people against each other in this passage. Those who live according to their sinful nature and those who live according to the Spirit and His desires. Romans 8, beginning in verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, they have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Now here's the great declaration in verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. What are you, what you are led by will determine what you choose to look at, how you respond to temptation, and where you will spend eternity. If you live by the sinful nature and your mind is set on what the nature desires and is hostile to God, living a life that cannot please God, you will receive everlasting death. This will be your punishment. If you're here today and you're living a life according to your sinful nature and you're doing whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do it with and you're fantasizing and you're lusting in your mind and you're committing actual adultery, you are bringing the wrath of God upon yourself which will ultimately manifest itself in hell. That's you. I beg you to consider the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ came into the world and lived perfectly and fulfilled the law including the one to not commit adultery. And he took the sin of those he came to save upon himself and rose again victorious over sin and death. Trusting in this Savior to save you from your sin is the only way to escape the impending wrath to come. Yet there are no doubt men and women in this room who regularly feel the weight of Christ's words here to not commit adultery and if you have committed or if you have looked at a woman with lust that you've committed adultery in your heart you feel the weight of that you know that the lust is wrong you hate the fact that you feel bound to this sin and you feel the weight of it brothers and sisters those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set upon what the spirit desires The mind controlled by the Spirit, it's life and peace. If Christ is in you, your body is dead to sin and you're alive to God because of Him who is in you. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living inside of you, He will also give life to you through the Spirit. You want to talk about freedom? 
People who want to watch whatever they want and do whatever they want to do with whoever they want to do with, they think that they're free, but they're really in bondage. True freedom is living by the Spirit of God. Jesus' desires for us as a people of His kingdom is that we live in purity, that we look at one another as Christians, not with lust, but with love. And that we look at unbelievers, not with, not with hearts that want to seek after them lustfully, but with hearts that seek to bring them the good news of Jesus. As disciples of Christ, your, your heart must belong to Him. Every word and thought and action that you have needs to be brought under the subjection of His rule. So may God help us by His Spirit to bring from our hearts only that which is pleasing to Him and not what is pleasing to our sinful nature. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to ask for your blessing of the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that you will change our hearts. I pray that you will grow us. Lord, help us to walk by your spirit in order to not submit ourselves to the desires of our flesh. Give us freedom. We love to walk according to the spirit. And it's comforting to know that he is with us as the comforter sent by Jesus. And we pray that you will again cause us to walk according to the Spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of our flesh. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Stand with me.